Okay, so I'm going to show you, start by showing you a little picture. I think that should be, I hope it comes up on it. So Sarah and I used to live in South London. Uh, anybody ever been to South London? Anybody yes. been to London? Yes. Okay, okay. There should be a picture before that, if possible. I don't know if there is or not. There we go. You probably can't see that very well. But this is basically uh, our house where we used to live in South London. Uh, <laughs> that's not our house where we used to live. Um, and uh, so we lived in a place called Lewisham in South London. It's a pretty rough part of London, I would say. But one of the nice things about that part of London is they have these old Victorian houses. And we were fortunate enough to have an old Victorian house. We still own that house. We have tenants living in it right now. And they're, they're full of character, they're, they're, they're nice-looking houses. But the problem with owning, owning an old Victorian house in South London is that the soil in South London is kind of very full of clay, which means that in some houses there's quite a lot of what they call movement, or, to use a technical phrase, subsidence. And whenever you take out insurance on the house, they go, is there any subsidence in your house? Now, if you have subsidence in your house, it means your foundations are built on something that's not very secure. And the way that shows itself in your house is that you start to get big cracks appear in your house. And quite a lot of houses in South East London, quite a lot of stuff was bombed during the war, but quite a lot of houses in South East London have a tendency to have subsidence, which means they have these big cracks that appear. And if you get that in your house, fortunately we never got that, but if you do get that in your house, what you have to do is you have to get builders in, they dig around, they basically expose all the foundations and they have to underpin your house. And it's like a kind of like house-owning nightmare, having subsidence. Because from then on, you have to tell the insurance company you've had subsidence. They, they kind of stick up your premium miles and, you know, they, that's what they do, right? Because the very mention of the word means they, they kind of times whatever your, your premium. And you don't, want a, you don't want subsidence in your house. It's a nightmare. And I think sometimes the picture of a house is a good picture of the church. And we've kind of like been in a little series and we're kind of coming to the end of it this week. I might do one more next week, I'm not sure yet. Really talking about foundations and the foundations of a church. And the thing about talking about foundations, if you look at the foundations of a, of a house, it's not that exciting to look at. They're messy. They're not the nice part of the house. The nice part of the house is the furnishings. It's the fun stuff, it's the hanging the pictures, it's, it's the tinsel, clearly, and the forever Christmas tree that sadly now has disappeared. I don't know where that is. But that's the fun side. The stuff underneath is a bit boring, it's a bit functional, it's like this, you don't really want to get your hands in there, it's dirty. But if you don't build that right, there's a good chance you're going to have real problems down the line. Okay. So one of the reasons why we're doing this little series is because we, we want to go, look, we want to build it right. We want to get it right so that we don't have to, at some point, come and dig it all up again and underpin it and go, oh, no, no, we meant that. Okay? So we've been in this little series, and we've talked about what is the church, what do we think biblically the church is about, why are we here, why are we planting a church together, what, what is the church here for, and we try to look at a picture, of the, the Bible picture of the church. We try and try to say, well, what do we uniquely feel called to, and it might not be unique, but what do we specifically feel called to? And then we've kind of like gone, do you know what? We have to get our hands dirty a bit and we have to pick out one or two more tricky subjects which are a little bit more contentious, right? And as I said last week, I've wrestled with this because kind of doing these subjects means I'm like, oh, is this a bit premature? Am I going to raise something which is going to cause more problems than help people? 
right? And I wrestled with that, and I said that to you last week, and last week we talked about the whole issue of sexuality. Because in the area of sexuality and the church's view on sexuality, that is where Bible at times really clashes with culture. Yeah, and we've talked about the fact that actually sometimes there are doctrines in the Bible which really fit well with culture, really fit well. And then there are other doctrines which really clash with culture. And that's where as a Christian you can feel really under pressure. Do I cave and just go with the culture? Or do I go, no, I think the Bible teaches this and that puts me at odds with the culture. And churches have to get really clear on that stuff. Because if you don't get really clear, you definitely get cracks in the walls down the line. It causes massive problems. So I've wrestled a little bit with this whole series and thinking, is this a bit premature? Am I going to raise things that's going to cause a problem that I'm not going to be able to really address it? But actually what I've, I guess I think even more is if I don't raise these things, I'm going to cause more of a problem by not going, look, here, here's where we're building. And for the sake of transparency and openness, that everybody in the room knows, oh, this is the kind of church we're a part of. I want to talk about some of the questions. So these are the kind of questions that you feel like, can I ask this question? Well, I guess I'm raising it for us, okay? Because I want everybody to know, this is the foundations that we're building on, and I don't want you to get caught out two years down the line and go, you never told me you believe that, Phil. So that's why I'm raising it now, okay? Now, one of the other problems about these kind of subjects is we don't have time to unpack what can be very complex and very sensitive theological issues. Now, that isn't code for, I don't know what I believe, and therefore I'm glossing over it. I do know what I believe, and I would be very happy to talk with you if you want to talk through more theologically. Why do you hold those beliefs? So I would be very happy to do that. But in this series, what we're trying to do is go, look, this is where we are. Here is some degree of a rationale as to why, but we don't have three, four, five weeks to unpack each subject. That I think you might find that is too much in the foundations. Okay, enough of the foundations. Okay, but that's why we're touch the, the, touching these subjects. So last week we talked about uh, sexuality and particularly the issue of same-sex relationships and where we would stand as a church on that. I'm not going to go into that one today, but if you weren't here and you think, oh, I just want to understand where we are, please come and talk to me. But we would hold a conservative theological view on that, a traditional Bible view on that issue. Okay. This week, I want to talk about the issue of leadership and how does leadership work in a church. Now, what I'm going to talk about, I want to just say right from the start, it's not the only way, okay? I'm not presenting today, I found the ultimate answer to how leadership, I'm not that arrogant, I'm very clear that lots of churches, lots of great people do this differently, okay? And there is some debate as to how to do this in church. So I just want to say that I grew up in a church which had a minister who got moved around from every few years. That was my granddad's job. He did that. Uh, I've been in churches where there's been no leader. Okay, but just kind of like a kind of central team who are more kind of democratic. I've been in churches where there's been more of a very clear senior leader. And I guess different ones of us have had different experiences of how this is done in different churches. So what I'm going to present is our best take on trying to be biblically authentic but we realize that actually there's all sorts of different ways of doing this so and i'm going to take you through some thoughts and we're going to touch some theological things but they're going to be surface level and i just want to say again if today i talk on something you got to go i'm not sure or can you talk can you talk, talk me through that some more if i raise some questions for you that don't feel resolved i would love you to come talk to me 
okay? Because I think that's a very keen value of ours, is that there's no question which is off limits, okay? So please do that. A few thoughts. First thing is this. Leadership is really important. I have never been to a good school, watched a good business, seen a good team, sports team, or whatever it is, without someone who leads or a team who leads well. I just don't think it really happens. Now, I say that because sometimes in church circles, it can get a bit weird around the subject of leadership. And occasionally, I've been in a church like this, which reacted so far away from the idea of leadership that they had nobody leading and had a team of people leading. And the church kind of like just plateaued into a kind of malaise of not really going anywhere. Okay, so I think leadership is really important. Now, it is absolutely true and biblically that in the end, only God grows or changes anything. 1 Corinthians 3, uh, only God, Jesus, you know, Philippians 2, Jesus is the head of the church. 1 Corinthians 3, only God makes things grow. Totally true. So if there's a church, we see blessing and blessing from God. If that happens, it is because God is blessing us. We absolutely acknowledge that. That's 100% true. But what I also think is 100% true is that God uses people. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 3, only God makes things grow, is preceded by, Paul says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but but God made it grow. Okay, so God seems to use people to work through. And whenever you look in history where God has blessed or there's been a move of God or even through the Bible, you'll see that God uses people. He raises up people. So we're not the source of change or the source of fruitfulness, but God appears to use people. And a picture I like to use, which some of you have heard before, is the picture of a sailing boat. And if you've ever been sailing, how many of us have ever been sailing? It's fun and scary all at the same time, I think, is in the end, the empowering of that boat does not come from you. You, you catch the wind and it's like, whoa, it's like being on a horse. It's like you feel the power of it, but you don't, you don't generate that power. The, generating, the power is coming from elsewhere beyond yourself. But you definitely have a part to play into whether we catch it or not. Where do we position the boat? Where do we put the sails up? Do we put this sail up or both sails up? How we position the sails has a huge impact in whether we catch the wind or not. And God calls us to cooperate with what he's doing. We are co-laborers. So leadership is important. The problem, however, with it is it means that God uses broken people to lead churches, right? And all of us, all of us bring our brokenness into church, okay? Leaders bring their brokenness into church as well, which means that they lead out of their own brokenness at times. And that can manifest itself in all sorts of ways, low-level ways, which is just like, yeah, that's kind of the way everything is, but sometimes in very overt, very unhealthy ways. And some of us may have been in settings where actually the leadership has been extremely unhealthy, okay, and unhelpful. So when I was about 22, it was not a church I was in, but I had an interaction with a leader. I was working uh, in India, in a school in India, and I had an interaction with a, it's a British guy actually who was out there, who was involved with a bunch of churches, and I had an interaction with him where he was aware of a decision that I had made in my life that he felt was inappropriate. And he was probably right. It probably wasn't a very wise choice I'd made, okay? So he wasn't wrong. But I remember him taking me aside for a conversation, and then we had one of these conversations which was absolutely brutal. I mean, he stripped me with his words, okay? And I'm, I'm, I was left feeling completely scarred by this interaction. I was too young to know how to defend myself. I've occasionally thought, I'd quite like to go back to that conversation now. I feel a little bit older. I might be able to handle that conversation a bit better. But at the time, it was just brutal. And now, looking back, I think, actually, that was really a very 
unhelpful, I would say abusive use of power as a leader. In fact, that guy got exposed later on, 10, 20 years later, as being actually quite, quite an abusive leader in terms of working with our churches and had to step out of leadership. And I experienced that. And you too may have experienced some, some quite unhealthy styles of leadership. I don't know. Hopefully also you've experienced some really healthy godly leadership as well. I'm hoping. But I know there's a whole spectrum of experiences in the room about this kind of stuff. The frustrating thing is the New Testament doesn't give us loads of clarity as to how church leadership should work. Okay? The New Testament is not a handbook as to this is how you do everything. But the good news about that is that I think God allows us to contextualize principles in different generations, in different parts of the world, which is really good. But it means we have to be very thoughtful about what we do in the setting we're in. So some quick principles I want to talk about, about leadership in the New Testament, and then I'm going to take us to one or two really more kind of like sensitive passages. Okay? First of all, this, and there's four of them. The first one's the longest one, so stay with me. So Jesus is our ultimate model of what leadership looks like. So John 13, there's a passage here, um, says this. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began washing his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on the clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done? He asked. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. You also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now, obviously, there's a lot going on in that passage, okay? But one of the things that's going on in that passage is Jesus is modeling an aspect of what leadership looks like, okay? So I'm going to show you a little, a little picture of a triangle or a pyramid. Very often, when we talk about leadership, one of the problems is that we have a particular view of leadership, particularly in the West, about what leadership looks like. And we, look, we think of it like this. Leadership is this person here and who tells everybody else what to do. Typically, a white male, okay? Unfortunately, okay? And basically, they sit at the top of the pile and everybody else does what they say. That's often the mindset. So when we come to the issue of leadership in a church, that's often the framework we're thinking of. But what you have in this passage is Jesus seems to be doing something very different. He starts to talk about a model. What does kingdom leadership looks like? In fact, one of my favorite passages in the Matthew 20, only for the sheer humor of the whole thing, which is where James and John's mum turns up and wants to talk to Jesus. Have you ever, you know this story? <laughs> I think this story is so brilliant. and I would have loved to have been there. So they turn up and they say to he basically, he's, James and John's mum turns up and says to Jesus, Right, Jesus, I've heard that, like, in eternity, there's going to be a few chairs around. Could my boys please sit either side of you in heaven? Would that be all right? You can imagine James going, well, Mum, you're so embarrassing. <laughs> you could just like, oh, no, I told you not to say this to him. Like, no, no, Mum, stop it, stop it. Like, I kind of picture them as, like, slightly mopey teenage boys. Oh, no, 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 no. And they haven't showered for a while. But, you know, and Jesus is like, <laughs> now this is what Jesus says. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant, not surprising, this is the other disciples, with the two brothers. 
Jesus calls them together, little team talk. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. In other words, they sit at the top of the pyramid and they tell everybody what to do. They tell people. They don't invite people. They don't serve people. They tell people. They they take advantage of their position. They lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. So they're exactly the same. That's the culture. Jesus says this, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So in John 13, what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to invert the triangle. I'm going sh- to turn it on its head. I'm going to go, no, no, that's not what power all looks like or leadership looks like in the kingdom. I'm going to take the triangle. I'm going to spin it on its head. I'm going to take the pyramid and go, no, no, no. Leadership looks like something completely different in the kingdom. And Jesus goes, if you want to be the greatest, you need to sit down here. Mm. It's not about who's up here. Okay? It's not about who says everything and gets to direct everything. It's about, it's about who's going to serve and love people and be compassionate. Who's going to model something godly? So Jesus inverts it. So he starts to redefine what leadership looks like. Now, that doesn't mean that in the kingdom, leaders aren't supposed to make decisions, think strategically, sometimes make tough calls that are not always popular. Yes, leaders have to do those things. But it means that all those things are done with a heart and a posture of wanting to serve, an agenda of being a servant rather than someone who's in charge. It's completely different in the kingdom, in other words. Second, third and fourth quick principles. Second principle. Biblically... All authority is recognized, never imposed. Okay? So authority in the Bible is recognized, not imposed. It's not taken. Right? So if I decided to go to another church, I'm I'm not, by the way, but if I did, and I found a church that I felt really at home with, I am choosing to put myself within that context and wanting to follow that, that vision and go with where they're going. I am choosing. I'm recognizing something. That leader can't tell me to do that. Okay, that is the wrong way around. All, if we're going to fo- follow people, it's something that we, we recognize in them rather than they impose on us. Imposition on us is more cult, right? But leadership is recognized, not imposed. That's really important. Number three, leadership is primarily relational, not structural, which you read through Acts. And you read through the stories of them, they put in elders in place and leaders in place, and you will find there's a strong relational aspect to leadership. In other words, leaders should know people and people should know them. Okay, so you look at Acts 20, Paul leaves Ephesus, or the Ephesian elders, sorry, in Acts 20. It is a hugely emotive moment if you read that. They're weeping together, crying together, they love each other, and that's what happens. So biblical leadership is relational, not structural, primarily. And Ephesians 4, leadership is primarily releasing. It's absolutely not controlling. Okay, so Ephesians 4 says clearly the purpose of leadership gifts are to prepare God's people for works of service. In other words, one of the aims of leadership is to release people into what they've got. To be releasing, not controlling of them. And where we get the triangle wrong is where we want to control it. But actually, it's no, 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 no. You serve. Leaders' jobs are to create a context and a culture which is releasing and empowering and equipping to release people into who they're called to be. So it's supposed, it must be releasing, not controlling so our aim altogether obviously is we want to build a church in Rotterdam which is full of life full of relationships 
that reaches out to people who are far away from God, that helps Christian grow and flourish, that trains and releases people and equips them for leadership, and hopefully maybe even one day multiplies other church plants. Releasing, not controlling. And part of doing that will be exercising of godly leadership gifts. Now, obviously the question is, therefore, well, who, who leads? Who's able to lead in the church? And this is where it gets a little bit more contentious in churches. Who's allowed to lead biblically? Okay, I want to say three quick things on this, and then we'll go to a couple of passages. First of all, this leadership within church is for believers. It might sound a bit obvious, but Paul writes to Timothy and says, set an example. You know, you have to set an example. In other words, if someone is not a Christian, we want people who are not believers in our church. Absolutely. But actually, leadership is for those who are Christians because they're part of a community of faith, helping lead that community of faith. So they need to have a faith. Leadership, I would say, by default, is for those who are committed to a local church. And I would say, thirdly, leadership, I believe, is gifting that is given to men and women. Okay? So there are a number of lists of gifts in the New Testament. I don't believe any of them are supposed to be exhaustive. They are all examples of spiritual gifts, but there's a number of them. And here's an example from Romans 12. Romans 12, uh, 6 to 8 says this. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. And if it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Okay, these gifts are given to the church. Everybody in the room... God has given you gifts, okay? And in 1 Corinthians 12, it says, Now to each one is given a gift, which is a manifestation of the Spirit. In other words, as we operate in those gifts, we show something of who God is, okay? And they're given to men and women, I would say, all the gifts. I don't think they're exclusive or qualified just to men. I think these are given broadly to the church, men and women. So, Men and women, I would argue, are called to lead and gifted to lead in the church. And you see this in the Bible. In Jesus' ministry, you find men and women very close to Jesus. Not just men. Yes, he has 12 disciples. Absolutely, that's true. But he has other women who are very close to him, who travel with him as well. So you can read that in Luke 8, verse 3. You will find there are a number of women traveling with Jesus, with the disciples. Okay? Paul's ministry is the same. Romans 16, verse 1, Phoebe is given a special mention. She's a deacon in the church. She's a leader in the church. Priscilla and Aquila, who are distant uh, relatives of Attila and Chilla. Uh, (laughs) That's true, right? I I always always assumed that was true. Um, Are given special mention. They are Priscilla and Aquila, and obviously Attila and Chilla, helped educate Apollos. Were you educating Apollos? Maybe not quite that old. Okay, um... Sorry for everybody. <laughs> Acts 18, so they, Priscilla and Aquila are, uh, are, are teaching Apollos and helping improve his understanding of Scripture and the way, and others are mentioned as well. So the gifts of leadership are given to men and women. Now I say that because in some churches people go, oh, I don't know. is that true? I'm not sure. I believe that is true. Okay? And therefore, from my perspective and our perspective, it means for the church to become all it should become we need everybody to operate in the gifting that God's given them. Men and women, if the church is to flourish. So it means men and women need to lead in churches and to bring their unique leadership contribution to the church. 
which means part of my job and part of our job is to help encourage, develop, release men and women, singles and marrieds, not just marrieds, okay, because that's easy to default into that as well, to use, to develop them, to use them in the, to help them to use their God-given gifts. Okay? So that's the first thing I want to say on that one. Now, this is where it gets even slightly more sensitive, but we're going to go there because we're looking at foundations we have to get our hands dirty. So, there is also a role in the Bible called eldership. This is where it gets a little bit more contentious. What, what is the role of an elder and who can be an elder? Now, the truth is, this is a very big issue and people I love and respect have different opinions on this. Okay? Now, I don't know if you've been in a church where they've had elders. How many of us have been in churches where they've had a role where they've called an elder? Right, okay. So, like I said, I grew up in a church where that role didn't even exist. I've been in churches where there was no leader at all, and it was like a kind of team of about 12 people. It was like the Politburo in the Soviet Union for a while, without all the kind of like persecution, thankfully. But it was like... It was like a kind of like a group of people kind of sort of trying to sort it out together. And that was okay for a while. And I've been in other settings where they've had clear eldership teams. So you may or may not have experiences. But clearly through the Bible, you read the Old Testament, and they're particularly new. There are references again and again to the role of an elder. Um, And there are numerous verses mentioning or describing the role of an elder. Now, first thing I want you to know is the role of an elder is not specifically for old people. When I grew up, I assumed they were just old people. Anybody old could be an elder. That's not, I think, what the Bible is saying, just to be really clear. Okay, so it's not specifically for, el- for old people. The role of an elder, basically, if you read through and you, understand, you look at the passages and you look at the, the text and the original language, is basically shepherds, guardians, who have a special responsibility for the church to keep the church safe, doctrinally, pastorally, and in that sense to help lead the church to protect the church. And there are two particular lists in the Bible around the issue of eldership, which about who can be an elder, okay? Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. Now, there are other important texts as well, but I'm just going to take you to these two because, like I said, we're going to, like, we're going to touch some of these issues without being able to go deep right into all of them. But I want you to see where the passages are so that if you want to look at them, read them, come back to me, all good, okay? So a couple of verses from Titus says this, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Now just to say, we don't have elders in our church because this church plant has existed for only a few months because there are no elders here. But one day, there'll be an eldership team in this church. 1 Timothy 3 is a very similar passage, but uh, just two or three verses from that, from verse 2. Now, the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. Now, interesting to note that pretty much all those passages are about the character rather than the giftedness of somebody. We live in a world that looks for giftedness in leaders, but it's interesting in the New Testament, the primary focus is on the character of the people. Okay? 
Now, you may look at that and go, well, that doesn't sound very contentious. But those verses actually are very contentious in churches. This is where I don't want to raise a problem for you that you don't already have, but I'm going to raise it anyway because sooner or later someone's going to ask me. So there we go. Let's raise the issue. These issues, first verses, are contentious partly because culturally (coughs) it sounds exclusive in terms of gender. Obviously, we live in a world where that is not acceptable and in many ways for very good reasons because of all the history and the legacy where things have been totally inappropriately exclusive in terms of men. Okay? But we live in a world where to, to make something a role exclusive on the terms of gender is completely inappropriate in the culture we live in. Right? So that's one of the reasons why this is contentious because we live in a culture that says you can't, you can't say that. that is, you cannot say that. Okay? That's the first thing. The second thing is this. Theologically, it's quite contentious as well because really good people read these verses differently. Okay, and if you've ever read different sides of this debate, you'll know different people, very clever people, Gordon Fee would be one who's a very clever guy who would read this differently to how someone like I would read it, but very astute theological brains have different opinions on these issues. And it's very important to recognize that, okay? Because we can caricature different sides, but actually very bright people see this issue differently. So, and they're theologically contentious for one, two reasons. First of all, because you look at this passage and you go, well, look, it looks to me like eldership is male for men. But the questions that people ask is this. First of all, when Paul writes these passages, is he writing about something which is just contextual or something which is a universal principle? In other words, is Paul simply addressing an issue in those churches in that moment, but he's not putting down a principle which is to be seen in all churches at all times? That's one of the questions that people raise. That is a very appropriate question because there are things that Paul teaches which are definitely contextual. Okay? So 1 Corinthians 14, there's a passage there, which again is culturally just like you wouldn't read this out in public. It says women should be silent in churches. You ever read that verse? Okay. Does Paul mean women should always be silent in churches? No. Because previously he says women should prophesy and pray. So he's clearly not saying this is a principle forever in the church. There are all sorts of reasons why that is clearly not a universal principle. Okay, and all, pretty much all scholars would agree on that. Because look, clearly it can't. So he is addressing in that moment a, something that is happening in the Corinthians church. And if you know 1 Corinthians, there's a whole lot of things going on in that church which was a bit nuts. Okay, so he's addressing issues. What is the questions he's addressing? We need to get behind the text and go, are there certain questions that he is addressing? So then when people read the passage in Titus and the passage in Timothy about elders, they go, is he addressing a certain issue which is contextual and specific to that context? Okay? That's one of the questions. Another question that people raise about those passages is, in the original language, although we translate it as men, in, in Titus and Timothy, is, is the language actually specifically male, or is it could be translated either female or male? That is another language. If you've ever read anything about this, you'll know that is a question that comes up. Another question that comes up, actually, is, is there an extrapolation of the Bible story? In other words, does God put certain things in place which way we see movements from the Old Testament to the New on certain doctrines, increasing a sense of revelation, and actually, therefore, beyond the Bible, at the end of Revelation, in the, so the, the canon is closed, but beyond that, there's still more revelation to come. I.e., are we living in, in an age where there's more of God that we can know than is revealed in the Bible? 
Okay? Some people would uh, raise, teach that. I've been in a Bible school where they started to teach that. Okay? Now, you may or not agree with it. I don't agree with it. But it's very important to know that some people are going, actually, there's more revelation now beyond the teaching of the Bible. Like, there's an extrapolation. There's a trajectory of the Bible that we live in the good of. And we need to, if you like, we need to try and work out what God is saying now. It's taking the Bible principles but applying them into our culture. And that is one of the questions that people ask. So there are questions around passages like the Timothy passage and the Titus passage. So, where do we stand? This is like the big reel that Praveen and Veronica do. Where do we stand? Okay, as we go for a, from a little group of 10 people at the beginning to now a group of 40 to 50 people, where do we stand? What are we going to put in the foundations? Okay, a few comments and then we're going to close. I believe God gives leadership gifts to men and women and we need both men and women fully released into the church for the church to flourish. And if the church has been a place where women have not been encouraged to lead, that means we need to work extra hard to ensure that they are because sometimes there is a legacy to that. Okay? So I think God gives leadership gifts to men and women and we need to encourage that. I believe that means that needs to not be tokenistic. Yeah? i.e. we don't need just men and women occasionally preaching on a Sunday. What we need is men and women around the table, around the decision-making table, to help inform, to help shape decisions, to help think through and pray through the direction and where we're going as a church. And we need men and women at that table bringing their voices and bringing their perspectives. Okay? So I am committed to wanting to hear different people's voices about where we're going forward as a church. I think we will make better decisions as a church like that. So it's not just that there are leadership gifts, but actually those gifts need to be recognized at a table and people need a seat at the table and we need to hear voices of men and women, married people and single people. But I also think there is a biblical role called eldership, which I think the Bible is clear is for men. I think that's true. I think there should be an eldership team, which is a plurality of leaders, not just one who are ultimately responsible for the church, to protect the church pastorally, doctrinally, and to shepherd the church. And so when Paul teaches in Titus and in Timothy, I think he is teaching something which is a universal principle, not just addressing a cultural issue in that moment. Now, culturally, I don't know how you feel about that, okay? Culturally, that feels clunky, right? Because we live in a world where that is not appropriate. We shouldn't, we shouldn't hold a view like that. And we need to acknowledge that. That's difficult. But this is where the picture of the triangle, I think, is really important. Okay? Because if we read those passages and we think about the triangle being this way up, what we're saying is there's a bunch of men who need to be at the top of the church, and they're the ones in charge of everything. And they lead everything. I don't think that's right at all. I think what Jesus is saying, and I think the Bible is teaching, there, are, there is a place in the Bible for elders. I think that role is for men. But they are here to serve the church, to love the church, to protect the church, and to release men and women into gifting. Okay? Not to control, but to release. To release people into all their God-given gifting. So eldership is not about power, Eldership is not about doing all the leading, okay? Eldership is about being like Jesus, 
loving, serving, sacrificing, to create a culture where people can grow that feels safe. A bad father in a family controls, intimidates, abuses their position. A good father protects, loves, releases the whole family to be who they're called to be. And the church, I believe, needs good fathers. It says in the New Testament, not, there are not many fathers. The church needs good fathers. But the church also needs really good mothers as well. Both and not either or. Now, we're going to close there. And I realize there's so much more we could say. I realize that may raise a whole bunch of questions to you. So I just want to say to you, if that raises a bunch of things you want to talk about or need to talk about, I would love to talk about that with you. Feel free to come and talk to me. I'm raised, we've just touched on some passages, but I want, to, I want you to understand what kind of church we're trying to build so that two, three years down the line, you don't go, I never knew that. I never knew that's how you viewed leadership. But I think God gives leadership gifts to men and women. We need men and women fully released. We need men and women around the table when it comes to decision-making and leading. But I think also right in the heart of the church, right in the center, I think God brings elders together to give security and direction and safety to the church. Okay, let's stand and we're going to pray.